not make a note to bring it next week. <laughs> Joshua chapter 5, what a blessing, amen. The song service was a blessing. The special music was a blessing. And if you can't get uh, excited about Jesus Christ being in the middle, now we'll have to pray for you, amen. Amen. I like it when he's lifted up. I really do. I like it when we get to brag on him. I like it when he is uh, right in the forefront of everything. And uh, that's a real blessing. Joshua chapter 5 this morning. I'm glad you came. I hope you can get your wagon loaded. And if I didn't bring a wagon, well, whatever you brought, I hope we can fill it up. Once you find Joshua chapter 5, I'll have you stand. It's not a very long chapter. Nevertheless, a good chapter. The Bible says here in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1, And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them anymore, because the children of Israel... At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made them sharp knives, and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. And all the people that came out were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not shew them the land, which the Lord sware unto their fathers, that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. It came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self same day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold there stood a man over against him with the sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went unto him and said unto him Art thou for us or for our adversaries? He said nay. But as captain of the host said Lord I am now come and Joshua fell on his face of the earth and did worship and said unto him What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua Loose thy shoe. From off thy foot, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Very interesting chapter in the Word of God. We're getting ready to go over to Jericho here. And I believe the Lord has some great things for us here in the chapter today. Dad, would you ask the Lord's help in the preaching this morning? Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Here as uh, chapter 5 begins, it opens up with a most perfect and paralyzing fear. It opens with a perfect and paralyzing fear in verse 1. You see, when God dried up that Jordan River for all of Israel to cross, He did it for two reasons. If you look back just one chapter to Joshua chapter 4 and verse 24... He did it to show the heathen the mighty hand of God. Not only that, but he did it to cause the children of Israel to fear the Lord. He did it for two reasons. And here in verse 1, these heathen kings, they're so stinking scared of what's happened. They are, 
they are demoralized and they're disheartened altogether. So I look at this thing just as we kind of open up the text. There's really two kinds of fear when it comes to God. The first kind of fear that I see is the fear of the criminal trying to avoid being caught. There sure is enough of that going on in the country today, even in the lives of Bible-believing Christians. You say, how's that? Well, because every time you see a police officer, you let off the gas, whether you're speeding or not. <laughs> That's just the fear of not getting caught. Why? You sped enough in your life, and you just know that you might just be prone to have a lead foot, and you're just worried about getting caught. And then there's the second type of fear. That's a fear of a child towards his daddy. Now, if you had a good daddy, you know what I mean? I mean, if mom ever told you, you just wait until your dad gets home. I heard that a few times growing up. Man, that was a lot. I mean, time stood still. You know it didn't, but it did. I remember one time uh, I got out of bed, and I was, uh, we had that little uh, 40 acres there off of Rempert Road there down by my brother, brother uh, Eric's camp there just up the road a pace, and actually at that time there was 80 acres, had horses and chickens and cows, you know, Big Mac and Quarter Pounder, and uh, our sheep, uh, Bo and Peep and all that, and Sparky and all the rest of the, the good hee-haw gang there. But anyways, I got out of bed and it was summer, and there was nothing more exciting than summer because you could go out and just run and play. All, I'm, I'm serious. And actually, uh, mother had to work too, and my dad worked. Uh, I'm not sure he's probably selling cars at that time. And uh, so there was a, a gal that came to church, and she watched us. And as soon as we woke up and got some cornflakes stuffed in her goat, she kicked us outside and said, I'll call you for lunch. I know, terrible parent. That's why they did it back in them days, just get out. Of course, we had chores to do and things to do. I remember one morning I thought I'd be smart, and I mouthed off to the sitter, and I uh, said something terrible. I know you find that hard to believe. I said something terrible to my sister. Well, she says, well, since you said that, you can go right back to bed. I was in bed all day long. And you know what she said? You wait until I tell your dad. I still remember that. I am scarred for life. When I got home, he didn't say, hey, son, how was your day? He didn't say, you want to go shoot the gun? He said, I'm going to tear you up. And he did. And he, uh, we were a patriotic family, and if that bothers you, that just because you're a product of this generation, you need to change your attitude, amen? But that's, amen, and that's the fear of a child towards his daddy, and uh, I had a good daddy. He loved me, and uh, I was scared. You say, why were you scared of your daddy? I thought you were going to preach on Joshua 5. We'll get there. We're just talking about verse 1 here and the, the fear here. I was scared of my daddy because uh, I knew he'd whip me, <laughs> and I didn't like whippings, Amen? I don't know about any of all here just like whippings. If you do, you're sick in the head, amen. Uh, but I, I, I hate whippings, and I knew he was going to whip me. And, but not only that, I knew he loved me. You say, how did you know he loved me? Because of all the good things? No, I knew he loved me because he wouldn't let me get out of line. Uh, I, you know, I, I've been doing this thing uh, pretending to be a teacher and uh, uh, there at the school there that I uh, have a privilege of working for. And uh, you have to get after these kids. You can't whip them. Don't worry. I'm not taking them out back and whipping them. Amen. Although you might see a vast difference in behavior if they did that again. Amen. And all of a sudden, uh, what happens is with some of these rough, roughneck kids, they have tough home lives. Amen. And all of a sudden, you're tough on them. And all of a sudden, they recognize that as love. It takes a while. I showed my wife this picture. Of this, uh, this was seventh grader. Colored me a picture. Seventh grader colored me a picture. Now, I wasn't very good, but the fact is, is I've been on him uh, like uh, sticky on glue. And I've just been on him and on him and on him and on him. And he's been booted out of class how many times? The first time he decides to behave, his teacher, he went up to his teacher and says, I want to give this to Mr. Evans. Bob broke my heart. You know what that is? He saw love in that correction. There's two types of fear there in the, in the, uh, when it comes to fear in God. That's the first uh, criminal type of fear of trying to avoid being caught. And that second type of fear is a fear of a child towards his daddy. Uh, and uh, I knew that I fear the old man. I still do. I often have dreams about him. You say, what is that? That's the fear of God put into me by my parents. Where'd that go? Somewhere over the rainbow. But he loved me. But he wasn't going to let me get away with my devilment. Amen? And here's the thing. You ought to love, you ought to fear God the same way. 
And I come to that old little old farm there in Rempert, Rempert Road. You know what I knew? I didn't always obey because I loved my mom and dad. You know where I'm going with this? You know why many summers I just obeyed? Because I feared him taking off that old blonde cowboy belt and wearing me out. Kept me pretty straight. You know, God's very much the same way. He wants you to love him so much that you begin to check your devilment. That's the right type of fear. You don't always obey God because you're so in love with God and the fellowship you have with the Lord is just so... I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying you don't always obey God because you love him. You should obey God because you fear him as well. Now, isn't it all better if we love the Lord and serve him because we love him and are faithful because we love him and do right because we love him? That's perfection. One day, brothers and sisters, we will do all that because we'll have a perfect body, mind, and soul. But two types of fear I see in that first verse. But as we move deeper into the passage here, having the right fear of God, I'm not an artist. I know I've told this joke before, but my old man said, you are the artist of the family, you draw flies. But I'm not an artist, but I see some pictures that can be painted. See, some of y'all just got there, like, oh, that's so corny. That's a dad joke right there, isn't it? Yeah, that sure is. But there are some pictures that can be painted through this passage to help the child of God. Amen. And I, I always liked to draw. I never got good at it. There was this goofy drawing program. I think his name was Captain Mark on PBS when I was a kid. And man, I love watching Captain Mark. He's probably a Fruit Loop, is what he was. My dad hated him. And he was like, he, and he always drew things about outer space. And I always liked drawing spaceships, you know, and little weird looking creatures and that. I don't know. Say, you all heavenly minded? No, I just like to draw. But, anyways, I'm not an artist, but if I could, I would try to draw some pictures for you. And I want to preach just a little message through this passage here. Uh, Picture is worth painting by the preaching and the preacher. Picture is worth painting by the preaching and the preacher. And I want to start here off, first off, right here. We're going to go right to verse 2. We already gave you some info on, on verse 1. I want you to see a picture of grace. A picture of grace. A little different message today. Just some real good practical truths. Maybe we can try to paint and orchestrate and kind of unravel and reveal to you what it is. Uh, verse, cha- uh, verse 2 to 9, we see a great picture of grace. Now, in this passage here, verses 2 to 9, what happens is according to the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, you had a whole generation of Israeli boys in the wilderness that should have been killed. Are you with me so far? What I'm saying is right here, beginning in verse 2 up to verse 9, what the Lord is doing to Israel, to Israel, to Israel, not you and I, is he's reinstating the right of circumcision. That began in Genesis chapter 17. Do you remember that? He made Abraham, who was a Gentile, before he became circumcised, making him the father of the Jewish nation. So what happened here is you have an entire generation of Israeli boys that are living, that are out of fellowship with God. And what happens is he says, all right, it's time. You have a beautiful picture of grace, beautiful picture of grace. And he should have killed the whole bunch. Remember, he killed, they dropped like flies in the wilderness, didn't they? Numbers chapter 16, you, reckless rebellion, so forth and so on. And J- Jacob and uh, Jacob, Joshua and Caleb are preaching the gospel. Hey, we are well able to overcome it. And the, all the fathers said, fooey on you, man, we can't do it. This is ridiculous. And so they dropped like flies. And over 500,000 of them soldiers, men of war, dropped dead in the wilderness. So here it is. They've crossed the Jordan River. And all these uh, generation of Israeli boys should have been killed. But instead, the Lord gave them a second chance. I'm slowing down because I want you to think about it spiritually. The Bible says in verse 2, And circumcise again the children of Israel. Notice what it says, the second time. The first time was Genesis chapter 17. He reinstates the right of circumcision. And instead of wiping out the entire nation like he should have, Let me step over in a spiritual application. Instead of wiping out you when he should have, he had grace on you. And that's what you see right here. A whole generation of Israeli boys given a second chance. 
given a second chance. Instead of killing them, the Lord just counted them as what? Just a bunch of Gentiles. You know what Abraham was before he was circumcised? He's Gentile. And people think that whole thing of circumcision was given with the law. It wasn't. Look in the book of John. It was given under grace under Abraham. Ain't that something? It's a picture. I'm trying to paint to you through this passage a portrait or a picture of grace. So God overlooks the covenant that he made in Genesis 17 for all those 40 years while they's in the wilderness and he lets them live. And you know what? God will do that for you and me, practically speaking. Think about it. If God killed every Christian that got out of fellowship with him, you couldn't go from here to Oscoda without stepping over a pile of dead bodies. But he's got grace, doesn't he? And even though you might be out of fellowship with Jesus Christ right now, you might be out of fellowship with God right now, and you might be out of fellowship with God for year after year after year, you know what the Lord does instead of kill you? He tries to woo you back into fellowship with him. You ever stop and think of how many chances he gives you and I to come back? Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Right? He's wooing you. He's giving you another chance. He's giving you another shot. That's grace. He gives grace to the, that uh, whole generation of Israeli boys. See out in the wilderness there, uh, the, the fathers or whatever, they couldn't circumcise them or they didn't. We'll just go with that they didn't. That whole generation knew they had the death sentence upon them and they were dropping off like flies for 40 years. They stopped circumcising them, little Jewish boys, even though they knew it was right to do. And don't you sometimes do what you know isn't right to do? God still has grace on you. That's a beautiful picture of grace here this morning in verses 2 to 9. Instead, God shows His grace and mercy even to the backslidden Christian. And it's interesting to me in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, you know what the Lord says to the last church age, the Laodicean church period? He says, be therefore zealous and repent. Be therefore zealous and repent. You know, he says over the Revelation chapter 3 to the last church of this age, the church of Laodiceans, he says, I counsel of thee. This is the only church in seven church in the period of church history that the Lord has to counsel. Stop and think of how relevant that is. More people need counseling today than ever before. So here you have the Lord, he's speaking to the seventh church, the church of the Laodiceans, and that's the, typically speaking the time period which we've been living, 1901 until we're out of here. And you know what's going on? There's a lot of counseling going on. And what he says, he says, be therefore zealous and repent. Where's our zeal? Where's our repentance as Christians? Oh, you know, preacher, repentance for the people, the drunks out there and all the law. No, that's for Christians. Christians need to be zealous. Christians need to repent. Christians need counsel. You say, where's the counsel at? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Here's 66 of them right here. We could start right here and get quite a load of counsel by morning. Amen? Talking about a picture of grace here. A picture of grace. God gave them grace. He gave Israel grace by reinstating circumcision. Now, doctrine, that's to Israel, not to us. Amen? But now in verse 8, here's the thing. Now in verse 8, they had to trust God now in the midst of danger. Once God gives you grace, you can guarantee you're going to see a little bit of danger. Look at verse 8 with me real quick. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 8, It came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. Now that was a real act of faith if you think about it. If you think about the operation that just took place, and we'll leave out the gory details and the tremendous amount of uh, soreness going on at this point, Israel was the most vulnerable inside that hostile enemy land that they ever had been. And that while, you want to talk about an act of faith, okay, wait a minute, Joshua, uh, what you're saying is uh, because our parents did wrong, now we have to go ahead and, and get this thing done. Yeah, that's what the Lord wants, boys. Yeah, all 586,000 if you go back to Numbers. Okay, so the entire army has to have this procedure done, and we're going to be out of commission for at least three days? Are you crazy? I might be a little bit crazy, but that's what God said, and I think we ought to get her done. And they're like, okay. Act of faith. Act of faith. 
the healing time, the healing time was when they're most vulnerable. You ever stop and think about it? Their enemies could have wiped them out. And it's just the grace, the grace of God that those enemies were so demoralized and they were so disheartened. Verse 1, that God could go in there and request their obedience. They performed that thing and they just trust the Lord. It was an act of faith. You know, in your Christian life, God wants to trust you, but you've got to learn to trust Him. And it takes an act of faith. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. And when you trust Jesus Christ by grace through faith, He expects you to walk by faith. He expects you to live by faith. And He expects you to trust Him implicitly. That's the real act of faith. I'm talking about a picture of grace. Israel has no choice but to trust God. And as a soldier in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have to trust the Lord in the midst of danger. There's the application. As a soldier, as a Christian soldier, whether you realize it or not, you are a soldier in the army of the King of Kings. You don't fight your own battles. You have to fight the battles that are the good fight. You have to fight the battles that God wants you to fight. Too many Christians today fighting their own little skirmishes and fighting their own little spoiler wars, messing around with the brethren here, infighting and outfighting and upfighting and downfighting. And the Lord never called a Christian to fight like that. He called a Christian to fight the good fight of faith. And you're going to have to learn to trust the Lord or else you're going to get it in the neck. You see, you've got to realize, just like Israel, you and I are smack dab in enemy territory. This is, a, this is like a, a little fort. Remember when you were a kid and you made forts? Maybe not the girls, but the guys, right? Let's make forts. It was a secret fort and everyone was safe inside the fort. You can't come inside our fort. This is our fort. This is our fortress. And our fortress is overseen by Jesus Christ. He's our high tower. We are smack dab in enemy territory. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You know, our brother Peter says that we are strangers and pilgrims in a war. Don't forget that, Christian. You don't belong here. I know some of you hate to hear that, but you do not fit in no matter how hard you try. I mean, as a kid, I saved at a young age, I just never fit in. You say, well, yeah, well, you're a nerd. Besides that... I just have never fit in. He said, yeah, preacher, but being picked last on the Dodge, I'm, I don't care about that. Actually, I did then, but I'm over it. Maybe a little bitter. From, yeah. You don't fit in. You're a stranger. It's bugging me, brother, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Now they don't pick me because I'm old. I'm like, just give me a dodgeball. I'll knock you out. One of the famous things, the favorite things I do as a gym teacher when I'm subbing for gym is like, let's play dodgeball. I'm like, yeah, let's do all the bad kids over here and all the really athletic kids over here. Now, <laughs> go. <laughs> you can't mistake the noise a dodgeball sound uh, makes hitting someone in the face. Boom. Some of you are living that right now. But we are smack dab in enemy territory. We're strangers and pilgrims in a war. This is not peacetime. You get that? This is not peacetime. Peace. No, 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 no. You're at war. I don't believe that. That's because you don't read the Bible. That's another message for another time, but you're at war. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says you are in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I'll say it again. You are in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Too many Christians going around thinking that this is just a great place to be and just go ahead and let's go ahead and put some roots down and let's just get all settled, let's get all comfy and let's make everything bigger and better and you know, bigger and better and bigger and better. No, it's getting worse and worse and you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I am listening for the upper taker. I don't care about the undertaker. That's a picture of grace. That rite of circumcision was put back in there, and as soon as they were circumcised, as soon as they obeyed the Lord, they had a real test of faith. And a lot of times, Christians, the Lord will test our faith. Why? Because we're in smack dab of enemy territory. He wants to know, are you going to obey? He wants to know, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus 
but to trust and obey. That's a picture of grace this morning. Let me give you number two in verses 10 to 12. I want you to see a picture of growth. Not only a picture of grace, but a picture of growth. I want you to notice here in verse 10, uh, you see the first Passover celebrated in the promised land, as well as the last time the children of Israel had manna exclusively for bread. In verse 10, you have the first Passover celebrated in the promised land, as well as the last time the children of Israel had manna exclusively for their bread. And you notice in verses 11 through 12, you have the transition from manna to the fruit of the land of Canaan. You see the transition there? I want to take note of that transition because what you're looking at is a picture of growth in the Christian life. A picture of growth in the Christian life. I want you to think about what the Israelites have gone through. We've preached, at, I, I think we could safely say, we have preached about it ad nauseum. For when uh, the children of Israel, they've been living upon miracles. I want you to think about it just for a minute. Everything you know, just relish in the fact of what Israel did through the wilderness. Whenever they needed water, they would complain, and God would provide it through a rock. Whenever they needed bread, the Lord would rain it down from heaven. That's pretty miraculous. I wouldn't mind if that happened. Save on the Walmart bill and the Meyer bill and whatever the fire bill is next, right? But they've been living miraculously. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5, many of you know this, but the Bible says their clothes and shoes never wore out. Wow. Can you imagine? having the same pair of Carhartt jeans, amen, and Carhartt, whatever. I'm, I'm trying to bring it up to speed so you all know where we're at here. And it never wears out. Yeah, amen. Boys and I built a couple dollar generals, and it shredded our clothes. You work with steel and concrete and drill bits, and you with equipment, it, you look like Swiss cheese at the end of the week. Just shred your clothes. But they're in the wilderness and their clothes and their shoes never, that's pretty, never wore out. What I'm saying, as long as they're in a place where they couldn't plant and replace their own necessities, which is the wilderness, God supplied miraculously. But now they've crossed the Jordan River and notice now they're in a place where they can plant, they're in a place where they can reap, and they're in a place where they can sow. You see the transition? That's a picture of growth. That's a picture of growth. That's a picture of God having to supply everything and do everything because they're such babies, right? And he's, neat, and he's nursing them through the wilderness. And all of a sudden, he gets, you get where God wants you to be. And all of a sudden, now you get to work. You don't work for your salvation. You work because that's the principle in the Bible. Did Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't. You know how you take care of the poor problem in the Old Testament? I'm not saying go back to the law, but stop and think about how smart God is. It doesn't sound dumb to say that, doesn't it? Like I'm somebody because I said God was smart. But even God's welfare program required work. The poor, you know what they were ordered to do? Go glean the corners of the field. You want to eat, Buster? Go work. In the Christian life, it's a picture of growth. It's going to take some work. Some Christians just want to, oh, provide for me, smack the rock, yell at the rock, yell at me, I don't care, just give me a handout. I'm tired of my shoes, I need a new pair of shoes, and you know what, I need some more bread, and I just, uh, the Lord's like, oh, oh, come on, dragging you through the wilderness. But you get over to Canaan, and sure enough, the same day after that, after the Passover, they start to eat the fruit of the land of Canaan, verse 12. When you first got saved, can I just remind you that God gives you a lot of stuff that could be considered miraculous in many ways. I remember when I first got saved, it was an exciting time. Of course, I was only seven and a half years old. So you fast forward to 1996 when I was 20. That's when God really began to deal with me. And I liken that to not getting saved, but pretty close. Because God became so real like my skin and bones. I mean, he just became such an integral part of my life, and all of a sudden he's got a book that's alive, and this book is talking to me, and man, this book is reading my thoughts, and boy, am I ashamed, and man, I can't keep doing that. And now every time I talk about something, there's red flags going, where'd that red flag come from? And every time I'm talking to somebody, there's another red flag, that's the Holy Spirit. 
And I just see that as a process of growth. And many times I remember in them formative years, even up to 20 years old, God would do things that was not miraculous for me. And I'm not talking about some goofy, you know, Ostlashandai and untie a bow tie and all this stuff for Israel and wonders and miracles. But I'm going to tell you what, God was so miraculous in some ways I shouldn't even talk about some stuff because God wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. I remember when I deal with the King James Bible issue. I put them on my pillow and I slept on a couple different Bibles. You say, well, that's weird. You go home and do it and see if that thing works for you. I said, Lord, I need to know which is the right Bible. I woke up the next morning. Now, I've been reading. I've been studying. This is Joseph Prince style here, whoever your favorite carrier's maniac is. I woke up the next morning and said, man, that's a book. <laughs> that's a, well, it's miraculous. But see, God doesn't always work like that, does he? He expects you to grow up. He expects every Christian to grow up. A lot of Christians just wish they were in the wilderness having everything handed to them. And see, now when they get over to the promised land, guess what the Lord says? Okay, it's time to plant. See, they couldn't plant anything in the wilderness because there was nothing could grow there. It was all dry, barren, and desert, so the Lord's nursing them and guiding them and providing for them, and all of a sudden now he gets stepped over here. That's a picture of growth. That's a picture of a Christian who's finally starting to grow in the Word. I'm hoping that's crystal clear to you this morning. The Holy Spirit will show the new babe in Christ a lot of things when he first gets saved just by reading. Isn't it good to read the book? Amen. That's an easy amen. Oh, all right, preacher, you're fetching amens. Amen. But you know what? After a while, you know what God expects from you? If you're going to grow in grace, 2 Peter chapter 3, he expects you to put a little bit more work in it, and that reading becomes study. You see, if you don't put the work into it, the Holy Spirit has nothing to go off of. You have to put the work into it, and you put the work into it, and the Holy Spirit can recognize that you're putting the effort in, and he can give you something back out of it. Too many Christians just want to read their chapter for the day or never want to increase that thing and never want to grow in that thing and never want to study and the Holy Spirit can't give them anything so they're stuck in the baby years. They're stuck in the wilderness. Here you have this thing, 10 last picture of growth. Interesting to me, new Christians, new Christians, newly saved Christians, they love preaching about the Holy Spirit and heaven. I mean, I love preaching about heaven too. But new Christians specifically, they love preaching about the Holy Spirit. They love preaching about heaven. They love preaching about power. But then all of a sudden you start preaching as a preacher. You start preaching about exaggeration. You start preaching about gluttony. You start preaching about pride. You start preaching about your thoughts. You start preaching about gossip. And man, that that thing gets quiet as a turkey farm on Thanksgiving morning. You say, what is that? That's growth. That's growth, isn't it? I mean, it's not all shouting to have some preaching, is it? But that's growth. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah's up there on Mount Carmel getting ready to take 450 prophets and turn them into a non-profit organization. He preaches a message for how long, I don't know. And then he says this, how long halt you between two opinions? And the Bible says, and they answered him not a word. They're like, They didn't know what to say. Then the Bible says in Amos chapter 3 verse 3, could two walk together except they be agreed? I'm telling you, it takes growth. It takes time. But you have to learn that just reading alone ain't going to get it all done. You're going to have to take that reading and it's going to have to turn into some study. And that study, it turns into more study. And you say, why? Because 2 Timothy 2.15 says that you and I should be a workman. That study takes work. Some of you like to read, and it's not as much work. To some of you, it's a lot of work. But to some people, it's not a lot of work to read that book. Now, I encourage you to read that book. The Bible says in John 15, you are clean through the word which I have spoken. Amen. That's why we play it while you're gone 24-7 to clean this cotton-picking wall stuff up. And then you get here and we pray that this building is sanctified. You remember that from last week? This building is sanctified for God's use. That's why I'm not going to let anything in this building that would dishonor God. It's set apart for His use. It's set apart from sin and set apart for a holy life and a holy congregation. It's growth, Christian. In the Christian life, you eventually have to grow up. Amen, parents? Eventually, the young'uns 
have to grow up. I watched this little short video. I know dangerous, right? This bird's up there. Little baby birds. Just picks one up and just tosses it right out of the nest. Would you like to do that sometimes, parents? <laughs> like, that's terrible. Eventually, Christian, you're going to have to grow up. And the Lord just up there sometimes with all his little squawking eaglets up there. Boots you out the nest sometimes. Like, ah! He swoops up, catch you, picks you back up in the nest. Like, we'll try it again tomorrow, 6 a.m. Why? He wants you to grow up. You've been eating manna for too long. Amen. I know it's fresh every day. It's, his mercies are new every morning. Amen. But it's going to take some work to grow up. I'm just showing. I'm just painting. I'm just. You're like, you ain't painting. You throwing buckets of paint, preacher. I'm just trying to paint you a picture of growth through verses 10, 11, and 12. It's a picture of growth. You have to move on. You say, what do you mean move on? Well, you have to move on in your Christian life, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, from the sincere milk of the word to maybe some bread, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And if you're going to eat some spiritual bread, maybe you go back to Psalm 19, verse 7, and grab some honey. That'd be good. But some Christians, you know what happens when you drink too much milk? You start, you start getting a sore belly, right? Ooh, now you got digestive problems. Tell me the last time you ate that big old milkshake, you didn't feel like someone could roll you out the door. A bunch of Christians drinking milk all day and every day, and they come to the church and they got a tummy ache, and they just, oh, I just can't take it. He's so mean. He's so judgmental in his preach. You got a tummy ache, don't you? Too much milk. Someone's got to change you all the time. Well, you might want to move from the sincere milk of the word, 1 Peter 2, 2, to some spiritual bread, Matthew 4, 4, some spiritual honey, Matthew, or uh, Psalm 19, 7. How about some spiritual apples from Proverbs 25, 11? But don't forget the end result, goal, is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. You can get a hold of some strong meat. And Paul says over there that it requires exercise, spiritual exercise. I'm trying to show you that picture of growth from the manna to the fruit of the land because now they can plant, now they can sow, and now they can reap. There's a picture of growth. There's a picture of grace. Let me show you this one here. This is the last one. Here's a picture of spiritual engagement. This has to do with combat. Look at verse 13 to 15. First of all, I want you to look at the man in verse 13. This man, he turns out to be the angel of the Lord, who Paul says, whom I am and whom I serve, over there in the book of Acts. This man turns out to be the angel of the Lord. You notice here that Joshua had to take his shoes off before that man in verse 15, just like Moses had to do in Exodus chapter 3. Amen? It's a man. It's a man, but he's an angel. Isn't that interesting? And according to a King James Bible, and a King James Bible alone, all angels in the Bible are male and have no wings. Amen? All the angels uh, are male and have no wings. Here's an interesting, Revelation 21, 17. I'm teaching and preaching at the same time. The angel who measured New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 17 was said to measure it, and I quote the king's English, according to the measure of a man, that is of the angel. So if all the, ma- uh, all the examples in scriptures of how angels are men with no wings isn't enough, you got the scripture sealing itself up in Revelation 21, 17 saying, according to the measure of a man, Comma, that is comma, of the angel. That's showing you the, uh, when you see angels in the Bible, they're men. They're not females. They're not sexless either, as some of the goofy scholars say. Why do you suppose Paul said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. If some fellow showed up, and he says, Hey, how are you? Good to see you today. And he, he walks in, and poof, a 30-foot wingspan shoots out of the middle of his back. Would you have to be careful to entertain that fellow? You'd probably flip out. But the reason Paul says that is because they're men. A little bit of Bible teaching is pretty good, ain't it? Keep you straight on your doctrine. Oh, never, never drive faster than your angel can fly. <laughs> Whatever. It doesn't matter if some of you hide angels in the car or not, you're still going to drive over the speed limit. 
The angel that appeared to Manoah in Judges chapter 13 verse 6 was said to be a man of God. The angels that went to get Lot and his family out of Sodom were men. That's Genesis 19.5. So the man that we see here turns out to be the angel of the Lord and it turns out to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. In religion they call that a theophany. More likely as a Bible believer that would be a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. All right, not just that. Besides the angel of the Lord in verse 13, we also get to look at the character of Joshua in verse 13. Notice what he says. He says, art thou for us or for our adversaries? Good fellow. See, Joshua had been given something to do. He'd been given a job. He'd been given a leadership role to take over. And you know what? He was looking to it. He was watching out for it. That's the character of Joshua. Joshua's character shows you there's no middle ground with Joshua. No middle ground. Art thou for us or for our adversaries? You know what Joshua wasn't? He wasn't an ecumenicalist. Joshua didn't say, well, if you don't like us, uh, well, you can come in and worship with us anyways. No ecumenical movement with Joshua. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? There's no middle ground. That's character. That's character, brethren. That's the way you ought to be in your Christian life. No middle ground. Are you for us or are you against us? That's the way it was with Jesus Christ. Joshua says you're either for us or you're against us. Jesus Christ says in Matthew 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. Pretty clear, isn't it? Joshua's got the character of Jesus Christ. He that is not with me is against me. You're either for Jesus Christ today or you're against him. There's no straddling the fence. You know what happens when a man straddles the fence? He gets slivers. That's an old proverb. <laughs> you're either for him or against him. If you don't accept Jesus Christ, then you've rejected him. There's no I'll think about it. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's no maybe, kind of, sort of. I'm thinking about it. It's either you have accepted him, and if you have not accepted him, you have in fact rejected him. You're either for Jesus Christ or you're against him. The Bible says in Luke 16, 13, no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. Not only that, but in 1 Kings 18, 21, I already told you the verse, how long halt you between two opinions? There's only two opinions. This world wants the Christian to believe there's a multiplicity of opinions, and you know there's a little bit of fellowship. There's a little bit of a yin and your yang, and a little bit of yang and your yin, and all that stuff. There ain't, that's not how it goes. Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? You're either for Jesus Christ, or you're against him. That's the character of Joshua. He was a good man. He was a good man. Now here's a spiritual lesson I want you to see real quick. The spiritual lesson in verse 13 is in trying the spirits. Trying the spirits. He says, art thou for us or for adversaries? Let me give you this verse here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You know what I see about Joshua? He takes absolutely nothing for granted. That's the way you ought to be in your Christian life. You take nothing for granted. Ever since the Lord brought us here in 2014, I take nothing for granted. I was pretty green around the years when I came here in 2014, but let me tell you what, I caution, I question, I wonder about everything coming through the door. Why? God's given me a job to do. He's given you a job to do. You ought to be the same way. I've had people come in and people come in and people come in and say, here, we want to serve the Lord with you and try to tear the thing to shreds. He said, well, you hate people? No, I love people. That's why God called me to be a preacher, to love people, to feed sheep, to love sheep, to help sheep. But he doesn't take anything for granted, and you shouldn't either. Joshua tests the spirits to see whether they're of God or the devil, and you should too. If you're not testing the spirits, if every little positive, warm thing that comes to you in the name of Jesus Christ, you ought to test that thing out. You say, Lord, uh, that little feeling, that little warm, uh, fuzzy chicken skin that I just got just made me, oh, you know, is that of you? You say, how in the world do you test the spirits? It says in 1 John chapter 4, you want to test those spirits, you say, that spirit that just told me that I should cling on to that thing, does that spirit profess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? And then just wait. And then you hear that thing or whatever. That, that Now, Lord, that spirit that just told me that, yes, the spirit that, that I was uh, dealing with it comes in the, uh, believes that Jesus Christ is coming. Is that the right spirit? And you wait. 
You don't just say, oh, you worship the same way we do. Oh, you say Jesus the same way I do. Come on in. It's, it's discernment. You got to learn to try the spirits, Christian. And that comes, of course, when? After you start growing. After you start growing. Joshua doesn't take anything for granted. And listen, Christian, if you're spiritual, according to that book that's in your lap in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that Bible says you'll judge all things. Judge all things. You judge everything. You say, how am I going to judge it? All right, two verses back, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. You judge it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. You judge all things by the book, and you compare it Scripture with Scripture. Now, here we go. I'm going long, but I'm going to give you this last part. If you're going to engage in spiritual combat, this, I'm trying to put the last few brush strokes on this painting here. You're going to need to follow these three rules of engagement that, jo that Joshua did. Three rules of engagement found in verses 13, 14, and 15. Let me show them to you real quick. In verse 13, the first rule is you're going to have to have some courage. You're going to have to have some courage. You live in a day where courage is failing. Hold the fort. That song says, Courage Almost Gone. That was written in the late 1800s. Where is it at in 2023? Gone. It headed for the coast. You're going to have to have some courage. Bible says in verse 13, And Joshua went unto him. You stop and think about that picture. Here across him stands a man, probably 33 and a half years old. Amen. And he's standing there with the sword drawn. And here's Joshua. He's the general of that army. And he's got his sword out. And he's like, yeah, uh-huh. You for us or against us? And he's just itching for him to say the wrong thing. You need courage. Takes courage to face things in this life. I'll be honest with you. I might preach tough. I'm scared to death on some things. And if you don't think, I mean, you're crazy. You just think because I get all worked up and riled up and try to preach what God wants me to that I'm all that. No. It's going to take courage. If you're going to go into spiritual combat after you start growing, you're going to need some courage. That's the first rule. And Joshua had it. Joshua had it. And don't think if a guy said our adversaries, if Joshua wouldn't went over there and took off his head. You need courage. Number two in verse 14, you need discernment. You need discernment. Notice in verse 14, the Bible says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. He discerned whether that thing was of the Lord or of the devil himself. And he had enough spiritual discernment to figure out that it was who he said it was. And when he realized who was in front of him, it didn't matter that he was the leading general of the entire Israeli army, that sucker hit the dirt. He put his face on the ground and he worshipped the angel of God, which is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. He had discernment. You're going to have to have some discernment as a Christian. When the Lord reveals to you what you're supposed to be doing, you need to get after it and get it done. And Joshua, he hit the dirt. He had some spiritual discernment. Well, let me give you the last thing here, three rules of spiritual engagement when it comes to spiritual combat. You're going to need some courage. You're going to need some discernment. And you're going to need the word of God. You're going to need the word of God in verse 14. You know what Joshua says? What saith my Lord and his servant? That ought to be every Christian's daily motto. When you get up in the morning, you see what Joshua said? You ought to sit and put that thing, put it in your car, put it on your fridge, put it on, I don't know, put it on your stinking forehead, I don't care. What saith my Lord unto his servant? You consider yourself a servant of God this morning? Well, then you're going to have to not only get some discernment, but you're going to need what God says about it. What saith my Lord unto his servant? Jesus Christ said in John 8, 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. As a Christian, you are to be, according to 1 Timothy 4, 6, nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. Nourished. You know what the word nourished means? Well fed. I mean, uh, a whole bunch of it. Amen. Some Christians are like on life support with the Word of God. Like, oh, oh, they're flatlining. Church service. Whoo, good. Hey, we're still there. Yeah, but you're on life support. Well, I wasn't for a while because I had to charge my cell phone, you know. <laughs> a lot of Christians are on life support with the Word of God until they're about ready to die, and then they get a little injection, and they're back at it again. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 6, verse 63, that it's the words, the words, the words of Scripture that are spirit 
and they are life. So you need courage, Christian. It's a tough road to hoe out there. I know our service is a reasonable service according to the Bible, but if you don't have courage, you might not make it. You'll make it to heaven for sure, but you're not going to make it in this Christian life. You need courage. You need discernment. A lot of Christians lacking discernment. A lot of Christians are just swayed and tossed by every wind of doctrine to and fro here and there. And Oh, this sounds good, and oh, that sounds good, and oh, what a wonderful ministry that would be, and oh, I'd like to do this. Oh, it's back and forth like the swaying of a tree. You need the Word of God. That thing will solidify you. So as the chapter ends, we find the historical narrative of Israel so practically painted to every born-again Christian. First of all, we should fear the Lord to stop our own devilment. Amen? That's wisdom. Then we see the grace that God's extended to us and the necessity for our spiritual growth. And finally, it's time to get out of the baby stage and grow up. And then you come into combat instead of sitting back waiting for the preacher to preach one that will make you feel good or remember the good old days. The Lord's asking you one thing this morning, and it's found in verse 15. Elizabeth, she's going to come play. But here's what the Lord's asking you if you go put yourself in Joshua's shoes. You see what he's asking you? He's asking you whether or not you're going to take your shoes off. You know what that's talking about? He's wanting to know if Joshua's all in or not. It's commitment. It's dedication. It's consecration. Take your shoes off. By the way, that's the first time the word holy is put in the Bible. And it refers to a piece of dirt. Not a Bible, not a person, but a piece of dirt. And here, the question today, I'll ask it to you spiritually. You willing to take your shoes off? You say, why should I take my shoes off? Because the Lord wants to know if you're all in. You know what we say when we have people come over? We say jokingly, take off your shoes and stay a while. You know what the Lord wants to know? He wants to know if you're going to take your shoes off and stay a while. As she plays, think about what's been preached. Maybe just come take your shoes off, stay a while in fellowship with Jesus Christ.